Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I'll be looking at the third uh, quarter of A Half Century of Conflict by Francis Parkman Jr. A Half Century of Conflict is the final book he wrote in his seven volume series on uh, the French in North America, but it's the sixth if you're reading it chronologically. As a, as a general history, as we are. So this is going to be another short episode, and I, I think there's going to be a lot of short episodes coming up, just because we're kind of getting into um, a lot of military history, um, a, lot of, a lot of different campaigns, a lot of different important military figures. But, you know, it's like we know Parkman's argument. His, it's kind of pretty clear, and he keeps hitting it again and again, and everything kind of re is reduced to that, how the different institutions in British North America and French North America led to the victory of the one over the other in the Seven Years' War. Um, and everything is kind of, especially in this book, A Half Century of Conflict, everything's kind of working up towards that. And uh, that's in his sights pretty much on every page of this, of this book. So in the last two episodes, we looked at Queen Anne's War, um, and the fighting in Acadia uh, during Queen Anne's War. And then we looked at some of the Indian Wars, the proxy wars that emerged in the aftermath of Queen Anne's War. And I think that was the most uh, important part in that, that section of the, of the book. Um, so this chapter, or these chapters, and there's only going to be five I'm going to look at in this episode, really kind of deal with two things. One is... Uh, the French in the West, and basically the French strategic position in the Americas at the time of King George's War, and that'll pretty much be the situation when the Seven Years' War breaks out just 10 years after that. So, um, you know, and it involves kind of a deepening of the French position in the far West, right? Kind of making up for some of their losses in, in Acadia during Queen Anne's War, but also just establishing their broader geo political strategic vision, uh, which their hope was a strong presence of forts, a strong military presence in the West would make up for the numerical disadvantages that the, that the French had. Now, you know, obviously, in the end, it's not enough. And the, the British North American numerical advantage uh, does is victorious. But as always, you know, Parkman sees the, the root problem as an institutional one, one of political culture. Um, liberty versus absolutism. And um, that, that, that maybe reductionist argument is his biggest flaw, but it's also, it's also what, he, what he does. So it's, it's his, uh, it's his um, argument. Um, so that's part of what this section of the book's about. And then we jump straight into King George's War. King George's War was the War of the Austrian Secession as fought in, in, the, in North America. Um, so, if you don't know, um, the War of the Austrian Secession was fought from 1740 to 1748, another long, drawn-out conflict, and its roots were in, in Central Europe. So, you had two major powers in Central Europe at the time. You had 
the Habsburg monarchy with uh, under a, under the, the Habsburgs, Austria, and you had the rising power of Prussia. And, and um, when uh, the Habsburg monarchy was left with no heir but Maria Theresa, um, they passed a law called the Pragmatic Sanction of 1735, which allow, would allow Maria Theresa to rule the Habsburg monarchy. This became the, the casus belli for Prussia to launch their war of aggression against the Habsburgs. Uh, their real goal was territorial and, and they wanted to win Silesia. Um, so it's, it's a war between these two rising powers in, in Central Europe. One, I guess one was more of a rising power, like Prussia's the rising power. The Habsburgs had been there for a while, but, um, you know, but Austria would remain a power in, in Central Europe until throughout the 19th century. So how does this become a global war? Well, it, it's because of the alliances and it's the same balance of power sort of politics that emerge. So uh, Austria was backed up by, by uh, the British and a few other powers and the French um, backed up um, Prussia. Now there's some longer history here. France and the Habsburgs have been fighting for like 300 years by this point, a series of wars going all the way back to the 16th century. So that's uh, part of, partially why. Now in the Seven Years' War, these alliances are gonna flip. Um, Britain's gonna support Prussia and France will support the Habsburgs for the first time, you know, in forever, as far as I know, at least in the modern era. There hadn't been, they've usually been at, at each other's throats. You know, even back to the Thirty Years War and before that, the Habsburg Valois conflicts of the of the Renaissance era. All right, long conflict, but it's it's it was like a it's something called the diplomatic revolution. It's the switch, um, and France ended up on the the losing side in that conflict. Now, at the end of the war, I mean, it was a bit of a compromise. I don't think there's, I mean, I guess Prussia wins the war. Um, the Prussian French alliance wins the war, but. You know, Maria Theresa is allowed to remain as, as the empress of the Habsburg Empire, but not able to regain lost territory of Silesia. And in, for instance, in North America, the major fighting, the major event was the siege and capture of, of the French Fort Louisbourg on Cape Breton Island, Ile Royale. I think it's now called Cape Breton Island. The French called it Ile Royale, which was that northern, northern part of Acadia still held by the French. And so uh, they took it, but then they gave it back in the peace treaty in exchange for like a, like a, for, for like some place in India, um, some territory in India. So those gains of, in King George's war, basically didn't amount to much territorially. So the, the map more or less is the same after King George's war, and it's gonna set up the very next conflict. So we've, we have like a series of pieces this is something Parkman emphasizes a lot. There's a series of pieces, all of which kind of don't deal with the fundamental question of, of which power will dominate Northern Europe. They're always just like little edge, you know, dealing with the borders on the edges, you know, who's in the Hudson Bay, who's got this part of Acadia or whatever. So it would finally take the conquest of Quebec and the total defeat of French Canada for a decisive victory by the by the British. But the, you know this is the, this this war had a little bit of more of a mixed um, mixed outcome. All right, so let's just jump into these five um, 
the five chapters I want to talk about today. So the first is called France in the Far West. And this starts out very, very interesting, actually, um, which, you know, we got like the ambition. We're told right away about this ambition of the French to really create this continental empire. Quote, the occupation of France by France of the lower Mississippi gave a strong impulse to the exploration of the West by supplying a base to discover, stimulate enterprise, by longing to find gold mines, open trade with New Mexico and get a fast hold on the countries beyond the Mississippi in anticipation of Spain. And to those motives was soon added the hope of finding an overland way to the Pacific. It was the Canadians with their indomitable spirit of adventure who led the path of discovery. As a bold and hardy pioneer of the wilderness, the French man in America had rarely found his match. His civic virtues withered under the despotism of Versailles and his mind and conscience were kept in leading strings by an absolute church. But the forest and the prairie offered him unbridled liberty, which lawless as it was, gave scope to his energies till the savage waste became the field of his most noteworthy of achievements. This, this sort of sums up a lot of what he's been saying about like the, the court of bois, the, the bush folk, the French Indians, whatever terms you want to use, the people, these really these French frontiersmen, right? But Parkman, and this is what I think is interesting about this section, um, you know, Parkman establishes here that you have this tension between two opposing forces. Uh, on the one hand, monarchy and hierarchy, and the other, the spirit of liberty of license, quote, which was in the very air of the wilderness continent reinforced in the chief's of the colony by a spirit of adventure inherited from the Middle Ages and the spirit of trade born of present opportunities. So there's some hope here in Parkman's um, framework for a very, very different type of New France in which, based on liberty, based on exploration, based on passion and, and heroism, right? But at the same time, by the middle of the 18th century, you start to see what Parkman describes as, a, as kind of a declining of this frontier spirit uh, due to absolutism and the, the, the Canadian church. Quote, time and the decline of the fur trade and the influence of the Canadian church gradually diminished this erratic spirit and at the same time impaired the qualities that were associated with it. The Canadian became a more stable colonist and a steadier farmer. But for forest journeyings, the forest warfare, he was scarcely his former self. At the middle of the 18th century, we find complaints that the race of voyageurs was growing scarce. The taming process was most apparent in the central and lower parts of the colony, such as the Côte de Beaupère and the opposite shores of St. Lawrence." End quote. So essentially what he's saying is, is this frontier spirits was dying out and they were becoming peasants, they were becoming farmers, they were becoming servants of the crown. And yeah, you didn't completely get rid of all the fur trading libertines and libertarians, out in the West, but there was a declining, there was declining energy for this kind of thing. Um, but nevertheless, we get really two quite interesting chapters about French efforts in the Far West. The first, um, just called France in the Far West, which uh, looks at different expeditions, expeditions that were sent uh, to the Trans-Mississippi West, uh, that of Le Sueur and that of, what's his name, Bernard de la Harpe. Um, they, you know, so we get the, their, their efforts to, to wash away the ignorance of the Great West that was still there for, uh, in French Canada. Now, bear in mind, this is all happening. These expeditions are happening at the same time the French are engaged in this genocidal war against the, the, the fox, which I talked about in the last episode. 
So it's all part of a, of a broader scheme, which is all put together in one chapter here called uh, Chain of Posts. Um, so the next chapter, which is chapter 16, in this book is called The Search for the Pacific. And this then focuses on two expeditions uh, that uh, took place between 1716 and 1761. Uh, those are the dates we have uh, for this chapter. These two expeditions were sent really to try to find the Pacific, an overland route to the Pacific, right? And this is this old goal of like the Northwest Passage, the old goal of, of trying to find a quick way to the Pacific. Of course, what the French are after here is more of a territorial continental fur trading empire, right? Which is, by the way, was totally possible. Like if you read, maybe we'll do it sometime, but it'd be a while before I go back to history in this podcast. But if you read Washington Irving's works, um, especially um, like the adventures of Captain Boneville or Astoria, you see how the America, the U.S. created this kind of transcontinental fur trading empire that connects uh, the Great Lakes to the Pacific coast and then from there to China even, right? You, know, you think of Astoria and the Seattle fur trade and all that. So it is possible and this isn't a a foolish ambition. It's just the French didn't have the resources and the knowledge and, and the, the men really to fulfill this goal at this time. But that's that's the plan. That's the hope. That's the that's the the overall geostrategic vision of 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 these of these um, French explorers. Now, it first comes the plan to get to the Pacific was first approached after Louis the Fourteenth died. Of course, the last decade of Louis XIV's reign, actually the last 20 years, were plagued with war, right? You have the Nine Years' War, then you have uh, the War of the Spanish Secession, and this just drained France, right, pretty much up into his, to his death. Um, but it wasn't long afterwards, under the Regency, uh, Louis XV's Regency, that the plans begin coming into Paris for expeditions that will be sent to, to, the, to the Pacific. Now, a few challenges they're faced. One of the biggest ones is hostile Native Americans. Um, now, Parkman seems to, he kind of falls into a little bit of a trap here where he often sees Indians as pawns of, of different European powers. Um, now, I talked about in a previous episode the middle ground thesis, which gives more agency to Native Americans who were able to play off different sides and that these diplomatic relations where, where, where contact zones where negotiations and accommodations took place. Um, so it wasn't all just one-sided, but there is a tendency in Parkman's view to, to see Indians as, as easily turned into pawns, uh, maybe with the exception of the Iroquois, who, who um, you know, you, it's hard to make that argument with the Iroquois just because they're so, you know, divided internally and they're just much better at establishing their diplomatic independence compared to groups like the Abenakis who got basically thrown into a proxy war with the British that led to their almost near destruction. Um, but here, here it's uh, the Indians like over in the Hudson Bay area that were kind of allied with the British and therefore interfered with French efforts to create this, uh, this passage to the, to the West. But anyways, two pretty good chapters that, that go back to a theme that started this whole epic, and that is the theme of exploration and discovery. Um, so next, um, chapter 17 is called The Chain of Posts. So this really gives us the geopolitical picture on the eve of, 
of King George's War and, and specifically the eve of, of the Seven Years' War. Um, so, quote, we have seen the contest, contest between France and England and America divided itself after the Peace of Utrecht into three parts. The Acadian contest, the contest for northern New England, and last, the greatest, the contest for the West. Nothing is more striking than the difference, or rather contrast, in the conduct and methods of the rival claimants to this wild but magnificent domain. Each was strong in its own qualities and utterly wanting in the qualities that marked its opponent. So we got a really strong contrast between these two types of empire in the West. Now, it's important to point out that uh, both had claims. Both were able to make claims to the Great Lakes, to the Mississippi Valley and the Illinois, different places. Both the British and French had claims. But what the French had, well, they were lacking numerical presence. They didn't have the settlers who could actually settle into these areas. Uh, and obviously the British wouldn't get there either. It would be the United States that would inherit these, these lands and, and turn it into a true empire. But what the French had were, were, were forts, this chain of posts that he describes here that kind of goes from Louisiana through the Mississippi, through the Great Lakes to Quebec and Acadia. As he sums it up, quote, if the English colonies were comparatively strong in numbers, their numbers could not be brought into action, while if the French forces were small, they were vigorously commanded and always ready at a word. It was union confronting division, energy confronting apathy, military centralization opposed to industrial democracy, and for a time the advantage was all on the one side. Um, that's the French side, and ultimately doesn't you know it's the British who went out. But you know, industrial democracy. I don't know. Give me a break, Parkman. I think you're, you're kind of being a little bit anachronistic there to talk about industrial democracy um, when looking at the British New World colonies. It's, it's something that I always, you know, he never really grapples with slavery. I mean, once in a while he mentions slavery just because a slave is in this narrative in some ways. But he never actually grapples with the realities of slavery um, and hierarchy and it, kind of the own forms of British authoritarianism there except as far as he wants to he kind of picks you know he picks on the puritans for being a bit you know hierarchical but you know he never really grapples with uh, the the reality of of slavery um so but anyways that's that's what he uh that's the picture in this chapter is just this french chain of forts not well maintained not able to withhold long sieges. Many of them are just um, palisades. Many of them are wood. They couldn't hold up to, to um, cannon. They weren't well funded. The crown didn't want to spend a lot of money on Canada. It was already kind of a drain on the resources. And these were kind of often, you know, basically paid for with merchants who, who use these forts. But, you know, it was a strong military position, um, but what the French lacked in, well, what the French lacked in numbers, they made up for in kind of having a military presence in the form of these forts. So uh, then we get to King George's War, or the War of the Austrian Secession in chapter 18, and in 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 two chapters here that I'm going to start with um, called the first is called The Mad Scheme, and the second is called Lewisburg Besiege. And I'll just look, talk about these together because it gets into the military history of King George's War. Um, so most of the fighting here takes place in Acadia. So the situation after the Peace of Utrecht was 
Um, present-day Nova Scotia was controlled by the British, but they still had claims on continental Acadia, like the, the area, um, you know, up to the Kennebec, right? The, you know, up, up through, they, like the British saw, like from Maine all the way through continental Acadia to Nova Scotia to be theirs. So they had these claims. And so it was a kind of a disputed land. There was other issues left by the Peace of Utrecht, like the right for French-speaking people uh, in Acadia to continue to worship Catholicism, things like that. Uh, now, the French still had clear claims on present-day Prince Edward Island, Ile Saint-Jean, and Ile Royale, present-day Cape Breton Island. And the major base was Louisbourg, Louisbourg in Cape Breton Island. And from the English point of view, this was a, a position for piracy and privateering and raiding. But it was a very, very important strategic position because it protected the St. Lawrence Valley, especially now that the British controlled uh, the Acadian Peninsula. So the, the War of the Austrian Secession began in 1740. Uh, King George's War begins four years later. This is when the French and the British join, join the war. And when news of the war came to um, the colonies, the, the plan originally was for the French, the French wanted to retake the Acadian Peninsula, and to do that, they wanted to take its 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 main fort, which was Annapolis. Fort Anne was there, and they failed in that. And this, in in, in response to this, in retaliation for this, in 1745, the British uh, laid siege to Fort the Fort Louisbourg, um, and that is basically the events described here. Now, the next chapter, I'll, I'll talk about this in the next episode, is the final fall of Louisbourg, but. You know, the, there doesn't seem to be, at least Parkman doesn't talk too much about the broader fighting in King George's War. And to be honest, uh, Wikipedia seems to confirm that most of the fighting was in that Acadia, Maine, Frontier, Abenakis, kind of extensions of those previous conflicts we saw from, from earlier. So in, in many ways, I get the sense that King George's War is almost just like a, a prelude uh, to the Seven Years' War, which would be much more, much more epic in scale. Um, but anyways, I guess that's all I'm going to talk about in this episode of, of this series on France and England and North America. In the next episode, I'll finish up uh, volume six of this series, Half Century of Conflict. Um, and then we'll be ready to jump into the final book in the series, Montcalm and Wolf. So, um, yeah, that's it for now. If you have any thoughts or questions about King George's War or... French Explorations to the Pacific, or anything I talked about, uh, you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, but that will be it for now. I'll see you next time.